The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And welcome to Dietary Requirements, the spin-off's food podcast that wins many awards. Each month we get together and eat and drink delicious things and chat to the buzziest people in the New Zealand food scene. Welcome to episode 6 of season 2, core Simon Day Toko Ingawa. Today I'm joined by Alice Neville, the spin-off's food editor. Kia ora, Alice. Kia ora. Sophie Gilmore, our very pregnant food boss. Yeah, Simon. You didn't laugh at me for once. And today, our very special guest is my old friend and food revolutionary, Nicholas Loosley. Nick is the founder of Everybody Eats, a fascinating attempt to use food to break some of our biggest social problems. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Nice to be here, Simon. Firstly, a shout out to our wonderful sponsors, Freedom Farms. Freedom Farms believes that everyone who eats meat has a responsibility to know how that animal has been farmed. They're dedicated to providing you with the best pork and free-range eggs. This Christmas, they've been really generous to donate half a champagne ham to the Dietary Requirements listeners. So if you'd like to go into the draw to win, this is going to feed 12 of you comfortably with enough for Boxing Day leftovers as well can watch the cricket with a big ham, Sammy. Please, please send us your favourite cooking tips to Neville at thespinoff.co.nz and we'll actually give you a shout out and share your tip on the next pod. Don't be shy, people. Send them in. The only condition is you don't have to live in Auckland, but you have to pick up the ham from Auckland. Um, you have to either get it from Freedom Farms in Parnell or come and visit the spinoff in Morningside. So Merry Christmas. Uh, put... Christmas ham giveaway in your subject line. No, put your best ham pun. Okay, best ham pun. Or I Christmas like, ham I like ham puns. Some so. sort of ham-fisted pun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So Nick Loosley has worked in hospitality for a very long time. Um, until recently, his biggest project was simultaneously running a high-end bistro and a beer garden in Russell in the far north. But in 2017, after returning to New Zealand from studying a Master's in Economics for Transition at Schumacher College in Devon, 
He started Everybody Eats. Everybody Eats is a pay-as-you-feel restaurant, um, but it's so much more than that. It's a unique proposition. It's saving food from being wasted. It's putting people together in an environment where they would never usually hang out, and it's breaking down social barriers using good food. How close have I got to accurately depicting the Everybody Eats idea? I think Nick's got a better elevator pitch than that. Oh, do you want the (laughs) elevator pitch? Definitely. I'll give you the pitch that I actually, I think I've memorized from our crowdfunding video. Go on. Here we go. Go on. (laughs) Everybody Eats is a not-for-profit, pay-as-you-feel dining concept. We take food that would otherwise go to waste and turn it into restaurant-quality meals. Our customers can pay whatever they like for restaurant-quality food. No, our customers can pay whatever they like, even if it's nothing, for restaurant-quality food. Beautiful. Nice. And so it started two years ago in Gamezi Street in St. Kevin's Arcade on K Road, uh, running just on Mondays. And, you know, that has to be perceived as a widely successful idea. I've um, volunteered there a number of times, and it's consistently packed with a with a long um, line of people waiting to um, get food. And this month, Everybody Eats opened their first, what do we call it, permanent restaurant? Yeah. And where's that? In Onehunga. Where in Onehunga? Uh, on the mall, so up from the sort of most bustling part of Onehunga Mall at 306. It's between High Race and the Baby Factory. Ooh. So where did where did the idea come from and what's... What's the point? Right. So the idea was born out of research I was doing for my master's in economics for transition. Before you go any further, what the fuck is economics for transition? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's also known as green economics, isn't it? Yep, that's an easier way for people to to grasp it. Um, Economics actually is roughly translated to home management. So economics isn't about money and numbers and... Um, the OCR and all these things. It's actually about how do we manage our resources. So economics for transition is um, treating um, the the world as our home and how do we manage it better. So um, I call it green economics or I call it how do we save the world from humans. And how do we save the world from humans one restaurant at a time? Well, that's a... (laughs) Well, how does how does everybody eat help save the world from humans? Sure. So I think one of the things that I identified while doing this research and studying my dissertation is that one of the problems that we have in the world is that we're increasingly disconnected and we don't really um, gather as a community that much anymore. Um, and so the idea of everybody eats is to allow anyone and everyone to come together around what I consider to be our common ground, which is food. Um, so we use what's called the pay-as-you-feel model, which allows someone who's you know, potentially living on the streets and can't afford to pay for a meal to sit down and eat for free. And it also allows someone who's relatively wealthy to come along and perhaps pay more than they would otherwise to help cover the cost of those people that are a bit less fortunate. And it's working, right? We've seen Gamezi Street flourish. Yes. Um, Gamezi Street was originally a pilot to see how the concept would work and we, we always wanted to set up permanent restaurants. Jamezi Street's still going strong two and a half years later and that's largely because it would just be too hard to close it. It's it's the highlight of probably 200 people's week 
um, and that's everyone from inner city homeless to elderly um, to our volunteers even. Like we operated in Avondale for three nights a week for six months um, earlier this year and the people that were probably most disappointed were our volunteers when we when we shut up shop to move to Onihanga. It goes kind of goes from strength to strength as well, I think. The um, Jamesi Street pop-up, you know, it started off as a let's see how this goes and then slowly the experience for the volunteers has got better, the experience for the people cooking has got better, so the food's got better, which means that the whole model works. It's kind of genius and a little bit ironic that it ends up being like a charity with a revenue stream because that's like a more technical or like understood definition of economics but it's I think it's just really bloody clever yeah in terms of that that charity thing like we we started off as just a an an ordinary enterprise with no charitable status and after three or four months we decided that that was the best route to go down however we're very different to typical charities in that we have like a bread and butter revenue stream so every day we're generating revenue through essentially selling, although it's not considered selling because it's koha, um, goods and services. So we, we rely a lot less than many charities on grants and funding. But yeah, the feel, you feel like you're getting something when you donate in quotation marks to everybody eats. Yeah, well, well, if you come and dine, you are. like you're, you're essentially eating at a restaurant. You're just given the opportunity to pay what you like. Um, and for that reason, it's not actually considered from a an IRD perspective to be selling anything. It's really, um, I think, more appealing. Well, I think it's really clever, the revenue stream element of it, because it means that the sustainability of the model is much less on shaky ground than lots of charities, and being at the whim of being declined for grants is something that anyone that works in the charity sector will say, makes you feel pretty vulnerable. It's like being in the, you know, normal business market and having one supplier and, you know, one customer. And if that customer pulled out, then your whole business topples. So, yeah, I think it's really cool. So the new restaurant, you have um, staff, don't you? Like you've hired a couple of people? Correct, yeah. Yeah. So at our pop-up at Jamesy Street, we employ one person to manage it and we um, rely on the generosity of amazing Auckland chefs to come and donate their time um, some of them you know once every three or four months but we obviously can't rely on incredible chefs to come five nights a week at Onihanga so we've employed Jamie um, formerly from Judge Bow a lot of people will recognize Jamie um, and Amanda Butland our restaurant manager she's been working in and around Auckland cafes pubs and clubs for her whole life and they manage a very very large now team of volunteers yeah cool what yeah. sort of percentage of your food um at both jamesi and the Ornihunga site are, is being is from rescued um at least 90 percent wow so we try to work with rescued so for people listening rescued food is food that would be otherwise wasted by um not by restaurants we work with raw ingredients um and businesses that can't use it anymore for whatever reason so that might be like a bag of mandarins where one's gone mouldy and they can't take them out of the bag and sell them individually. Like or it, supermarkets. Yep, so it could be supermarket stuff or it could be um, a, you know, a yogurt company that's labelled something incorrectly or just simply something that's short-dated so that might have a week before its best before date and they know that they're not going to be able to sell it in time. How big a problem is food waste? 
food waste is a ginormous problem. Uh, we waste around a third of the food we produce as humans. So we spend a huge amount of time, energy, oil, resources growing all this food and then a third of it doesn't end up in our stomachs. Um, and then and there's a whole lot of people that don't have enough food. So the system is pretty broken. Yeah, hugely. It's a distribution problem and, and one that um, I think will will very likely continue to exist. Um, and that's a, a whole you know can of worms to open up. Um, but yeah, huge problem. Um, if food waste were a country, it would be the third highest emitter of greenhouse gases after the after China and the US. So wow. contributing massively to global warming. That's crazy. Yeah, it's so hard to fathom that and to think that people are, don't, do not have enough food at the same time, even in places like New Zealand, is buzzy airs. <laughs> it's enormous in food poverty and food insecurity in New Zealand as well. And it's sort of like, it's embarrassing in a way. We, we actually have, um, there's various different measures, but we actually have one of the worst food pro- poverty and homelessness issues in the OECD. Wow. Why? Um, that's probably a political question yeah. that I'll try and steer away from, but um, I think the divide in this country between rich and poor has, has grown um, in the last 10 years. Well, that's a really nice way to segue, I think, as well, because... Everybody Eats is trying to close that divide in a, in a really cool way, which is oversharing a meal. And as a volunteer, that's the bit I've loved the most, is getting to connect um, with a demographic of people that wouldn't be a part of my everyday life usually. And, you know, I've worked in hospitality for a long time. These are easily the best clients I've ever had. The serving tables of the K-Road community who are coming in to have a feed that wouldn't otherwise um, that they wouldn't otherwise have, that's been prepared by you know the likes of the French cafe staff. Um, they're just so stoked to be there and so um, grateful to us for you know providing them a meal. And I think that's so an important cool. part of it is that it's a really dignified restaurant experience. So it's not just a, it's it's intentionally not a soup kitchen, which means that people are treated in the same way that they would be if they were paying punters in any restaurant. So, you know, having your water topped up and someone ask you how your day is and genuinely look after you, I think is um like the really special part of service. And a chance to hear um stories about their life and learn more about what different parts of New Zealand looks like has been a really powerful part of um, the things I've taken away from participating with Everybody Eats, which is cool. I think to Nick's point as well, though, so social isolation is one of the problems that um, Everybody Eats is targeting, solving. But it's interesting that some people actually don't feel comfortable sitting next to someone. I think the gap has become such that some people don't necessarily feel comfortable sitting next to someone of such a so different socioeconomic bracket to them. And I think that that's quite alarming. I think that we have much more in common than we do difference. And so if we can foster people just looking at the person next to them and saying, how was your day? Um, it, it's important that people are willing to put themselves in that position as well. You're, you're absolutely right, Sophie. There, there are... I mean, we don't know we don't know them because they don't come because they feel sufficiently uncomfortable um, either sitting next to someone who's you know got far less than them or far more than them. Um, but from my experience and, and my observations when I was in the UK and Spain doing my research, the one thing that will bring to get people together more than anything else is food. And the reason that 
everybody eats, um, serves everyone the same meal. Um, we don't have beverages for sale. There's nothing for sale. Um, is that as soon as you put the same meal and give people the same service, you break down all those social barriers mm. and it becomes a level playing field for everyone. And, you know, we see all sorts of different interactions every night. Um, you know, we see professionals wearing suits, sitting opposite barefoot homeless people chatting over a feed. And it's mm. it's super humbling for both. Um, and in my opinion, actually probably more important for the wealthy people to break bread with the less wealthy people yeah, um, and to recognise that they're not beggars on the streets and there's a reason that they're in the challenging situation they're in and once upon a time they, they were, were a doctor, there. you know, like th- there's so many stories. And, um, yeah, that's kind of my hidden agenda is that is that social part of it. And for a lot of our volunteers that's as well what they, they find the most special thing about giving their time. And typically people, I think, that work in hospitality or are drawn to hospitality um, really engage with that. You know, we're taught from a young age or when you first start in the industry to try and read the person and deliver to them the service that they want. And so there's something that I think is, you know, like I really enjoy sitting next to someone that might be telling me about, (laughs) there's that guy in the Jamaisi one, I won't say his name, He's a regular and he's telling me about his recent stint in a Christchurch prison. <laughs> and it was fascinating, his stories, that just on the same level that it would be fascinating hearing anyone's stories about. But, you know, it's I don't feel uncomfortable in that situation because I think that we're trained to deal with so many different people and I find it genuinely interesting. I think it's like the problem is the level of distance that has been created between the gap. That just means it's like a tough barrier to break through. Well, there, our society is increasingly siloed and you don't... Um participate with anyone outside that and everybody eats as a really cool platform or place for those barriers to be broken down. Are you finding a similar mix of people in Onehunga as in K-Road or is it like more families? Or? Slightly different. So a yeah. lot of people um, are really surprised when they hear that we don't want to set restaurants up in the city. And the reason we don't want to set restaurants up in the city is because there's only a certain type of vulnerable person that's attracted to the city. You don't get families so much. If you've got kids and you've got no money, you don't, you're don't. you not homeless in the city. Um, there's also not people that the system's just simply left behind. So we need to be in a community um, that can access... Um, it's kind of like the working poor, isn't it? The when you say the people poor, yeah. that got left mm. behind. So um, the, the, the mix is slightly different. There's um, less of a huge variance between haves and have-nots um, yeah. than at Jamaisy Street. It's harder to... Um, to know who the vulnerable or the the people that are in need are, then then at K Road it's it's quite clear. Yeah. Um. Although in my experience, you, you can't assume anything. Mm. Like one story is at Avondale, we we're trying to understand where our customers were coming from because we wanted to know how far they'd travel. Yeah. And I personally asked every single person, um, hey how did you get here and where do you live mm-hmm. um, or where do you stay is probably more appropriate for yeah. a lot of the people that that, that we talk to. Um, and there was a really good-looking, tall, mouldy gentleman that was dining with us like once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. I just assumed he was like, you know, a creative in an advertising agency in the city. Yeah. And I asked him in a tone that was expecting, you know, oh, Graylin and car. Yeah. And he was like, oh, bro, I um, I sleep in my car on the roof because wow. there's a car park above, and I was just like blown away. So, yeah, you really can't 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 judge. Um, yeah. But yeah, to answer your question. Um, 
more families, more kids, um, and hopefully a lot more people coming over Mangari Bridge from South Auckland. Mm, yeah, there's quite a. Um, I am the lead on Dine, which is another food charity, and I went to the city mission last week and spoke with um, the fundraising managers of Wellington and Auckland, and they've had this crazy exponential rise in demand for food, emergency food parcels. So those are parcels that have got pretty basic things, but it's enough food for three or four people for three or four days. And the demand went up last year by 40% on the wow. year before. And I said, why? And who is it that's um, needing them more? And it was the same answer. It was the working poor, the people that can't deal with any sort of financial surprise. So if there's a medical bill or a car breaks down, um, they're seeing a lot of those people. They're also seeing quite a lot of, um, so those are like two income households. But then there was also quite a lot, they said, of um, single mums yeah. coming through that are working, but the salary of one person not covering the expenses of the household. Mm, yeah. Do you find, because this is a new concept, that there are people confused about how it works and what's going on? Because, you know, we, we understand things like the city mission, where it's, which is providing food to people who desperately need it. And we understand, you know, what a, how a restaurant works and those who can afford it can go on and engage with it. Is there people who don't quite get everybody eats yet? Yeah, there certainly are. Um, and I think there always will be. And people make a whole lot of assumptions that um, make things a bit difficult for us. Probably the, the most common misconception and the thing that we um, try and combat the most in terms of communication is the attitude of, of wealthier people that if they dine at Everybody Eats, they're taking food away from a homeless person is what they'll generally call it. Now, if we don't have paying customers, we can't actually feed homeless people. So it is exactly the opposite of what they think. Yeah. By not dining at Everybody Eats, they are actually taking food away from a homeless person. Yeah. So we encourage people to look at it um, in a completely different way and understand that it is for everyone. And the reason that we use the pay-as-you-feel model is it gives everyone the opportunity to come and feel comfortable in the amount that they give or don't give for for the meal and that must be interesting as well in terms of the way you present both the restaurant and, and the food you know this new site is beautiful it's um you know been put together really superbly you know, the food is described as restaurant quality we're about to eat some lamb neck and some baba ganoush um that was from from everybody eats do you think that ever puts up a barrier to people who that might feel like beyond them? 100%. Um, so in the same way that any of us would feel very uncomfortable walking into the city mission and grabbing a feed um, because, you know, we can all afford to eat, um, vulnerable people, homeless people, whatever we, we call these people that we're, we're hoping to help, they feel similarly uncomfortable work, walking into what they consider to be a, a flash establishment. So um, any location that we operate in, in the, in the early stages, we need people from the community that can hold hands with the, with the vulnerable people, bring them into the space, make them recognise that it's nothing uncomfortable. And once that happens, they come back. Um, yeah, I was going to say, that's actually not that hard, is it? If you just say, you know... If you, it, food is food and it's here for everyone and you're just as welcome as everyone else, people relax, but someone just needs to put you at ease. Absolutely. So, yeah, we need those sort of local ambassadors. Um, we had um, Dane Smith in Avondale who who's a, works in the community there who was amazing 
for us to um to have on board he actually on the first night we opened we didn't get any of the local homeless and they were all standing outside looking into this brightly lit you know relatively nice restaurant and the feedback he gave me was that nick it's too flash they, they don't oh, want to yeah. come in they don't feel comfortable so on the saturday night he runs a a community meal called Feed the Streets. Um, Tom Scott from um, Avantdale Bowling Club, among other things, is, is one of the main volunteers and people behind it. And um, on the Saturday night, I was um, meant to be going out with my girlfriend for dinner, and I said, I can't go. And she said, why? And I said, I've got to go and invite homeless people from Avondale to come to a restaurant because <laughs> I, I needed to personally be there yeah. to say to them, I run this thing, I want you to come. As soon as I did that, they came and they came every night. Yeah. There's about 50 coming every yeah, single night. Yeah, I was going to say, they actually literally came yeah. every night. There are people that have dined at Everybody Eats more than I've been there. Yeah, there's a amazing. couple There's a couple that um that that come every, have been to our pop-up every time. They came to Avondale every time when we opened in Onihunga. They came every time. And we actually, for the first time, did Meat Free Monday. Oh, yeah. Um, which we're planning to do, Meat Free Curries every Monday in, in Onihunga. And they came along and they sat down. And they found out that it was Meat Free Monday, <laughs> and they got in their car and they drove to Jamaisi Street because we're open in, on in two locations on a Monday. Oh wow! Crack up, picky. Yeah. So, if you want meat free, then um, come to Only Hunger on a Monday. If you yeah. want meat, then um, head to Jamaisi Street. Oh, it's such nice. an interesting um, fine line as well on the food front, right? So. Um, I'm on the board with Nick and we discuss this kind of thing all the time because the food needs to be refined enough that you or I want to go there for dinner. Mm. It meets our expectations. Ideally, it exceeds our expectations. And so we pay the same as or a bit more than we would otherwise pay. Yeah. But that can't be really complex flavor. It can't be really intimidating. Yeah. Um, I guess like out outside the box ingredients you yeah. know you can't have like mega chili you can't mm. put something really weird that someone's never heard of on the plate because then you're not achieving what you're trying to do but I think that having Jamie at Onihanga is so exciting because having someone consistent that can produce food that is of genuine restaurant quality and and have the capacity to do more than that and to really impress when it's needed as wicked. Oh, the continuity is incredible. Like having Jamie on board is, has changed my role quite a bit. And the food that he's putting out in Onihunga with a purpose-built kitchen with some incredible equipment like a brand-new 10-tray rationale combi oven, is it just changes the game completely. Yeah, that hummus is delicious. Mm. Yeah. It's still challenging though. Like the baba ganoush is real smoky, like too point where it's almost charcoal which is delicious. Lamb yeah. lamb neck is not something everybody eats. <laughs> lamb, lamb, yeah. lamb neck is an interesting cut because I, I haven't really seen it uh, until about two or three years ago. And I think a lot of people are a bit afraid by the idea of neck. However, it's just a muscle. Um, yeah. And it, it goes crazy that people could think of a neck different to a rump or a it's, leg or <laughs> yeah we, we take a wee while to get used to these things um we've actually just started getting hold of some incredible meat um i went and rescued some meat the other day and there was lamb rack um, oh my god i don't even buy that at home we've been hmm. we've been donated um dry aged beef um we've got all sorts of interesting stuff we're getting some prawns today 
So with with our own facilities and walk-in chiller and soon walk-in freezer, we can hold on to awesome stuff. I feel yep. a bit bad for you there, Alice, eating the um the day-old fatouche salad. It's quite tasty. I'm <laughs> not going to lie. The bread is it's kind of soggy, which I like. But ha- tell me how a lamb rack would go to waste. So how do, how prawns ending up in a position where you're allowed to serve them? Yeah. But the original owner might not have been able to use them. Refer to earlier distribution problems. So prawns, we, we don't typically deal with seafood, so it's not something I'm an expert on, but prawns, um, I believe, will have a date on them, um, a best before date rather than a use by date. And that means that a seller of that food, they can sell it past its best before date, but it's telling a certain story to the, the customer if they do so. So typically businesses won't sell things past best before. You'll find dairies doing it with like Coke mm. because Coke's never going to go bad. Um, with the, For one million years. With, with meat, um, it depends how the meat's packaged. A lot of meat these days is vacuum packed, which means that it's got a, a lot longer. And with things like lamb and beef, you can actually sort of age them in the vac pack, especially with beef, for example. You'll get restaurants that buy buy fillets and they'll just leave them in their fridge for, for a month or whatever um, and that just builds flavour really. A brief interruption to your podcast, we need you to sign up to the spin-off members to keep great, independent, important New Zealand journalism alive. Sign up at thespinoff.co.nz forward slash dietary requirements and you will receive one of our dope podcast badges. Kia ora. Sorry about that. It's Alex Casey from The Real Pod here. And this is Duncan from The Real Pod. We're here to, to tell you that as well as enjoying this podcast, you should also listen to ours. It's a reality television and real life in New Zealand podcast recorded every week. It's, 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 it's relevant. It's not relevant. <laughs> it's crazy. It's real. It's raw. It's three mates having a nice time and talking about the television. If you like popular culture, if you like celebrities, if you like reality TV, or if, even if you hate it all, have a listen. You might be surprised. Yeah, definitely if you hate it all. If you hate us, well, lots then, of ammo. It might be an issue. Lots Any, of ammo. The spinoff.co.nz, search RealPod, you might have a nice time. Maybe. Um, with, with the lamb, um, I'm not going to mention where, where we're getting it from. Um, but it's it's frozen. So what happens with meat is they'll typically wait till it's um, been on the shelf for a wee while. It's generally premium outlets that that do this. So not your pack and saves or like your Asian supermarkets, more your high end retailers and wholesalers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll just wait till it's you know at a point where they don't want to sell it and they'll freeze it down. For a lot of people, they won't even freeze it down. They'll just throw it away because freezing it down is um, another step. Um, it's another thing to train people on, and it's time and space. Space, mm. um, but when you know you know the value of a lamb rack and how much space it takes up, it's it's criminal to throw it away. Like, you know, th- these are f- you know fifty dollar a kilo pieces of meat. It's and and it is criminal in some countries, right? It is, yep. Um, France is probably the most famous for um, making it illegal for supermarkets to throw away so that means dispose of to landfill um, food products that that's a really interesting one and it's actually 
um, from my time in the UK, I, I spoke to a lot of sort of academics on the topic and people that were on the front lines of food rescue over there, and they actually really disliked that piece of legislation. And the reason is is that it legitimises food waste for supermarkets. It makes it okay for them to waste food, and by waste I mean dump it on someone who's not capable right. of dealing with it. Now supermarkets, depending on on who they are, waste varying amounts of food, but essentially what happened in France, and maybe this was a temporary problem, was that all of this inc- this incredible volume of food was just being dumped on agencies, for example, like the City Mission, and they literally couldn't deal with it. So then they would dispose of it, generally to landfill, because it's the cheapest way to do it, and it would just get passed along. So it legitimised it for the supermarkets. Be careful of that plate scraping, girls. I reckon you're going to get people turning off, especially uh, Leonie Hayden. Leonie Hayden hates it, plate scraping. (laughs) Joe Swinburne would be gone by now, sends shivers down his spine. What is then a better solution to the actual systemic issues of food waste? Oh, huge question again, but um, I'll, I'll give you a couple of my you're, opinions. You're a master of how to solve the world from humans. Like you have a bit of paper. No, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to have a crack at it. Um, one of my least favourite things is is dates. Um, typically, used by dates are put on products that humans' senses will not tell them that it's not okay to eat. So, in the US, for example, the only product with um, a used by date is infant formula. So we're blessed as humans. If something looks yucky or smells yucky, we ain't eating it, right? So best before dates, in my opinion, are um, a real problem because they don't only stop consumers from wanting to eat it, they stop producers from wanting to sell it because they assume that consumers don't want to eat it. At, I, that one really, really riles me up. I just, it is insane to throw away something that smells and looks perfectly good because of a date stamp that's been put on it. Should we Which, call some people out? Oh. Richard Old? I was, about, <laughs> I was about to say, we're going to start with, you get people that have, I don't even know if Richard's ever had food poisoning, but he is really neurotic about people it. If Richard came home, that. if Richard came home yeah. from like a few beers and wanted to have a, you know, some Nutri-Grain before bed because he had that drunken hunger and it's sort of 11.59 and ticks over to midnight and the milk's uh, on yeah. that, he'd pour it down the sink oh straight away. Well, even that. the so nu- the grain, which would never go off, had yeah. some sort of bullshit date on it. He probably wouldn't eat that either. He but definitely, he definitely wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. there yeah. is this modern sort of fear that people have, isn't it, of like that food food is like going to make them sick. I have friends who just constantly think that food has made them sick, whereas I have a view. I don't know. Is it an upbringing thing? I'm just kind of like, if I feel sick, I'm like, oh, it must be because I drank too much. I don't know. I'm not. I just don't presume <laughs> it's because probably quite I ate something bad. Out. So, you know? you, Alice, you've just touched on probably the main reason why humans waste so much food, and that's because we're massively disconnected from it. So, if you talk to your grandma or your grandma's grandma, she probably knew how to pull the feathers out of a chicken and how to grow a carrot and how to, um, you know, hunt a rabbit. These days, you can walk into a supermarket and eat mincemeat that's put in a styrofoam tray with glad wrap over it. You don't have to see the animal. We don't we, we don't know anything about food anymore. And if you go and have dinner at a farmer's place, I'm sure that they don't throw cow in the bin because they raised that cow. Yeah. So, yeah, through necessity or, or convenience or for whatever reason, we are increasingly disconnected from the food that we eat. And that means that we throw it away in the same way that we feel very comfortable in general throwing away T-shirts. Mm. We didn't see the cotton grown. We didn't see the slave labor in Vietnam make it. And it cost us five bucks. Yeah. 
Do you find many people, like, they have that kind of icky factor about the fact you use food that would otherwise be wasted? Do people say, like, oh, are you going around, like, dumpster diving and stuff? We just don't see them. Yeah. They just don't come. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of people that... that... I think I've been asked that question before. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, think that we dive in dumpsters. We we don't. We, (laughs) We receive large donations from legitimate businesses yeah. um, of food Perfectly that looks good food. pretty much identical to what you buy in the supermarket. Would it be legal for you to dive in a dumpster and serve that food? Um, probably not. No. Uh, There's still a level of compliance involved. Well, di- diving in a dumpster is theft, so that's that's a problem. But, um, but food control plan-wise? Yeah, I assume so, yeah. It's, I it's, think there's, you know... It's there's regulation there for a reason. You would hope, because the whole dumpster diving thing came from sort of supermarkets throwing out whole, still like packaged, like bread rolls and stuff, right? Which you'd yeah. hope they're not doing so much anymore because there are organisations like Everybody Eats. And it still happens. There's still yeah. a lot of it. I think I think New Zealand in particular has done a fantastic job in the last five years to help solve or at least redistribute the, the food waste, and that's largely because of a legislation change. So the 2014 Food Act says it's got a clause that we call the Good Samaritan Clause, mm. which says that if you believe food to be fit for human consumption at the time of donation, you're exempt from any civil or criminal liability. Um, so that means you can donate anything, basically, apart from stuff that's past its use-by date. Also, it's crazy how the solution to the distribution problem is basically another massive distribution problem, which is that there are there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of food banks around, particularly in Auckland. Like I think the Auckland City Mission supports another 49 food banks around Auckland. So there's literally people in cars just shimmying food around the whole time to try and stop it going to waste. It's pretty yeah. impressive. It, it, it's, it's in general to me a relatively inefficient system. Mm. So what's what I'm really impressed by is is the work that big food rescue organizations like Kiwi Harvest and Kaibosh are doing. We work really closely with Kiwi Harvest and, and what they've achieved in the last uh, especially in the last two years is phenomenal. So they they've kind of gone away from this model of rocking up at a countdown and sorting through four banana boxes of kind of like yucky produce to going direct to growers, for example. So they now receive deliveries of um, you probably picture what like an apple picking crate is, like a big one point two by one point two by one point two cube full of potatoes, carrots, uh, onions, um, and they and they're perfectly good. Like they're that stuff that the farmers are forced to turn back into the soil if there's nowhere for it to go, right? Why? Because it looks a little bit different. Um, yeah, that's one of the things. One, yeah. one of the one of the things. That's that another big problem, eh? If if, uh, if an onion isn't round or a banana isn't perfectly curved and yellow, like. Our brains have been programmed um, so intensely to picture food as an exact thing that if it doesn't... One single yeah, definition of what it like should look that, like. We'll so, so it, like, it's really easy to look at that issue and hate it and be like, oh, well, supermarkets should do this and supermarkets should do that and people should just think this. But you can see how it happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Like 50 years ago, the little guy in the market was putting this on his shelf and he realised that if he stacked them this way and he made all the tomatoes shiny and he did this and the bananas with this curvature were the most popular, then people bought them. So we're naturally, you know, in business especially, relatively competitive and everyone follows suit. So how do we reverse out of that? 
And and my solution is, and what really pisses me off is that when I go to the supermarket, I don't get the choice. I only get the perfect stuff, mm. and I have to pay a premium for it. I want to I want to see the ugly orange and pay less for the ugly orange. And supermarkets, and I speak to people that own supermarkets and run supermarkets all the time about this, and they say, oh, we just do what our consumers want. But they're just doing what they think the consumers want. And but we... you shouldn't just accept something as well because it's the status quo. Like I think that um, Countdown have done that experiment called The Odd Bunch, and that's gone really well, and they're mm. rolling it's, it out now. It's unfortunately um, not cheap enough in my opinion, and I, and I, and I respect that um, moving – food rounded vehicles and getting it on a shelf and beeping it through a checkout costs money but it's not massively different if you go and look at the odd bunch or, or what they're doing in pack and save um it's like a little shelf in the corner and and there are supermarkets that are doing um like happy hours as well where you can go in and get that stuff at the end of the day that would otherwise go to waste which is um a really positive thing as well because if people want like you say you want a lower price then you're willing to go in at a time that suits them, exactly. which doesn't add cost to the model that they're running. So, so going back to the food bank thing, like that is a much more efficient distribution model than all of this ugly or not wanted food going to one agency, getting passed to that agency. And then from my experience, what happens is you end up giving people that don't know how to cook a bunch of silver beet and they don't cook it. And it goes, mm. where does it go? It goes in landfill. So it just gets passed along. That's why I started Everybody Eats because I recognized that a lot of vulnerable people didn't know how to turn X produce into something delicious and we just do it for them. So I would much prefer that the, half the food banks existed and all the supermarkets didn't pass their surplus or the growers didn't pass their surplus on to agencies to then pass it on to food banks. But they just came up with a system where people that already go to the supermarket, everyone goes to the supermarket to buy toilet paper or whatever, um, they had access to the, the cheaper food and it, it's just so much cleaner. But then you've got the problem, like you said, of them not knowing what to do with it, and we can't presume that people have cooking facilities or know-how. So it's an, it does just create another problem. But at least they can choose what they're purchasing. With yeah. a food bank, people receive a food parcel, and it might not even be culturally appropriate for them. Like yeah. they, they may not ever, they may not eat that produce for a certain reason. They might not eat onions and garlic. Mm. A lot of people in the world don't eat onions and garlic because they don't believe that it's good for their gut. So it's... It's a much more efficient, it's, it's a market system in a way. It's a more right-wing system. Um, however, I think it's much more efficient to give people choice. And I think that, um, like I spoke with the ladies at the City Mission about us having, um, you know, lots of contacts in the food industry, putting, make it easier. Like we'll do some recipes that go in with those emergency food parcels so people can um, understand that, you know, there's mints in there and there's canned tomatoes, and the purpose of that is that you cook those things together to make your bolognese because it's not it's not obvious. That that is what's particularly scaring, and another reason why everybody eats exists is because um, people just don't know how to cook anymore, and mm. and a lot of people do, and that's fantastic. And there are some amazing families that get by. You know, they feed eight people on a fifty dollar budget mm. at Pack and Save. Like a little goes a long way some places. But a lot of people that are struggling, as you mentioned, don't have cooking facilities and they don't have the expertise to turn something basic or anything at all. Even if you gave them a lamb rack, they probably wouldn't know what to do with it. Um, we, we get donated a lot of um, really high quality produce that certain agencies can't give other people because they know that we're the only ones that will know how to cook mm. it right. Yeah. Do you lamb see neck. 
And that, Jamie, that was very delicious. Thank God, you. God, that was, yeah. That, I honestly, Simon just had to tell me to stop scraping oh, the plate. Well, that was, that a, was so delicious. That, that was a, he made a harissa from scratch. So that this is some of the cool stuff that we can do at a permanent space. So in, at Jamaisy Street, you know, we've, we've got five hours to turn around 300 covers. So 900 plates of food. It's, yeah. it's pretty hectic in a smallish kitchen. So now we've got our own equipment. We can, we can store things. We can preserve things. So he can make stuff like harissa from scratch. Yeah, that um, had like cool. Yotam Otolingi all over it. It was bloody yeah. delicious. Big ups, Jamie. Yeah, Big nice ups, Jamie. work, Jamie. I'll and never forget cooking with Samir on one of the early Jamaisi Street evenings. And he was trying to do enough spaghetti for 200 people. And <laughs> it was just so He probably hard only did that one. It. He only did it. He's like, that night in the kitchen, like, this is the last fucking time I'm doing spaghetti. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And... Just cooking that much pasta that's been donated, so it's you know prone to sticking together a little bit. Yeah, um, it's it's really really hard, and you I, I bet you've learned so many it's things. It's a totally different ball game, bulk cooking. Oh, there are a lot of lessons learned, and, and as you you guys know, I'm not a trained chef, but um, I've kind of come to be an expert on feeding 300 people in a short amount of time, and it's quite funny because we we literally work with some of New Zealand's best chefs, um, the best chefs in the country and in Auckland, and and. I feel weird guiding them, but it's necessary because not many people have. <laughs> They're like looking for yeah. the tweezers, yeah. and you're like, "Nah, yeah. mate, yeah, yeah. start mashing them Put potatoes away the now." <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's incredible what some people can produce. Like Amano came in, um, Amano and Rosie came in a uh, week before last, and holy, like they put like seven or eight elements on the main course, and it was phenomenal. Like it was, yeah. it was. You know, we don't do that much good Mexican in Auckland, and and I was pretty pretty stoked that we were serving it at everybody eats. Up. Yeah, I think that if they, um, it's a different mindset, right? So if they get it and they plan and they think about it, there are some hacks that put, you know, a whole lot of flavour. And like whenever I cook, I you know put Indian spices all over the potatoes or whatever it is. There's like things that you can do that really elevate it that don't actually take you. Heaps of extra time and energy. Another good chance to segue into our cooking tips uh, for the month. Um, I've mentioned to Nick that he could think about some tips that revolve around preventing waste or using bits of things that would otherwise, you know, normally go in the bin. Um, but we'll get to him last. Do either of you want to kick off? Uh, yep, I will. Mine's also a food waste tip. Oh, Use Prepared. your. Oh, did I do this one? Already? You did. You were going to say use the tops of the carrots. No, I was going to say don't use the tops of the radishes this time. Oh. There we go. That's <laughs> yeah. a common thing. <laughs> no, but when you thin it, that's such a good idea, especially if you're growing your own radishes. When you yeah. have to thin them out, microgreens are the fanciest, uh, yeah, easiest addition to making your meal look good. Or even just buying, like, bought a bunch of radishes from Countdown last night, and then I just snacked on them, and then I stir fried up the greens. Yeah, beautiful. Should we but all try and do food waste? Okay, um, I will then slightly riff on what Nick said about buying the cheaper, wonkier stuff. And I would say keep an eye out for the stuff that doesn't look the way you think it should um, because often it's the organic or it's the spray-free and people haven't bought it because they don't like the way that it looks and the flavour between um, something that's been cooked in beautiful organic soil compared to something that's been cooked with quantity in mind, is um, really different. And it's actually worth doing a bit of a side-by-side taste test. I remember I did it with um, Ben Bostock. This is like five years ago. But he had an organic pumpkin, 
and I had bought a regular pumpkin. We were away for a weekend and there was heaps of food. And we roasted them side by side. And you realize how much you rely on the look of something to guide you. Because if I close my eye, the regular pumpkin basically could have been a carrot. It could have been a pumpkin. It could have been a sweet potato. And then you taste the organic one and it's just completely different. So buy spray free, buy organic things that have been... Look at the things that have been put in like the specials department and left behind because often they're the goods. Nice. One thing Nick taught me as use the whole broccoli. The um the stalk is really really oh, tasty yeah, yeah, and man. a completely different uh, flavor. And I think that's one thing we do wrong. Do people a lot. throw away broccoli stem? Definitely. Oh yeah. People just eat the florets. No. I know. How, how's this? How's this? So we were rescuing food from. Um, an organization that was rescuing food from another organization who was only using broccoli stems mm. and they were throwing away the florets. So, wow. so these guys had pre-prepped unlimited sort of thumb-sized florets of broccoli because they only wanted the stem. Bizarre. So weird. Bizarre things happen. And if you don't want your stem, put it in the freezer and use it to make a stock. Yeah, I have a lot of big stalks in my freezer. Just on the stem though, you do want to Peel off that the outer outer, bit, outer yeah. part. It's it's tough and quite bitter. Fibrous. Well. Fibrous is a good term. I went to a um, fundraising dinner for Kaibosh in Wellington, which is a food rescue organisation. Oh, I wanted down to go there. with that part of uh, Wellington. Wellington on on yeah, it was Calder Haynes, who's an amazing chef, and she did something with broccoli stems. God, what was it? I can't remember. It was pesto. Delicious. No, it was. There are like lots a, of pestos uh, being made these days out remember. of all sorts of weird things. Um, but she had got it from the supermarket because of how they sell those bags of the florets. florets. Right. And it was just, she was like, well, what happens to all the stalks? So I contacted the supplier and then got all the stalks from the supplier. Very nice. Good on it. Nicholas. Um, I'm a huge fan of the freezer. Um, mm. I'm, a, I'm a big efficiency person. So when I cook, I tend to cook for, for more people than are actually eating. And I freeze stuff. So some of the stuff I love to freeze the most is um, bone broths. So if I roast a chicken, I'll always make a bone broth from the from the carcass, from the bones left over. And that's super easy. You just bring it up to the boil and simmer it for anywhere from 2 to 22 hours. Um, and then you just take off, you skim off the top of um, any of the impurities that float to the top. And then just put it through a sieve and whack it in the freezer. And then, do you add vinegar to get the collagen out of the bones? I just, I just want to be clear on the difference between bone broth and stock. Okay, so a bone broth um, will typically be cooked for longer than a stock. And in terms of the vinegar, you put vinegar in before you heat it in order to extract a lot of the nutrients out of the bones. So, um, if you want to make a, a really nutrient dense and you've got a bit of time on your hands, then you can put a little bit of vinegar. Uh, into your cold water, so you soak the bones in right. cold water, a little bit of vinegar, and then just bring that to the boil and make stock out great, of it. And great that, mutual tip. Yeah. Can that be um, cooked bones or just uncooked? Well, I mean, Sophie, as you know, I was picking up all of, well, not all of, some of the surplus bones from Bird on a Wire back when you were at the helm there, mm-hmm. and um, those had already been on the rotisserie. And they'd and make a bone broth? They would make an incredibly rich bone broth because some, there'd be the odd like charred bit. Um, and another tip, sorry, when you're making bone broth is if you want more flavour, you roast your bones lightly. Mm. Um, Colour is flavour with food generally. So if you pop them in the oven and roast them, um, you'll make a, a richer, like heartier, more umami broth than if you use um, just the raw bones. 
And I think that broth shouldn't necessarily go in, like you wouldn't use it like you use a stock. I think that the terms have been a bit mixed up. Like a bone broth should really be the core ingredient in the in the noodley soup or whatever it is that you're making, rather than going to the effort to make bone broth and then tipping it into your pumpkin soup. Right. Okay. Yeah. So tortellini abrodo with a chicken broth or yeah, yeah, yeah. beef noodle soup with a beef beef bone broth. Stocks and broths are great for people that are trying to be a little bit more conscious um, and eat a bit more plant-based because the bones are of an animal that already died um, and they're incredibly healthy. But they also give at least me what I really crave from animal products and that is umami. Like yeah. You can obviously get umami from mushrooms, tomatoes, various things in the plant kingdom, but um, bone broth even if I put it in my mashed potatoes, gives me that satisfying, rich, savoury hit that I that I crave. Yum. Drilling, there's drilling about to start in three minutes, so we'll move on to our recommendations for our last meal segment. Where's a great place you ate recently? I have to shout out because I love falafel. Carmel's Israeli mm. Kitchen that's been showing up at... Um, the Parnell Farmers Market, where oh. I sell flowers on a Saturday. If you She's want to come, really and, if you want to come and meet me in person, lovely peonies at the moment. <laughs> Don't do it. Meet me in person. Simon will be signing um, people's limbs on Saturday. I'll, I'll at hand, the out, Parnell I'll hand out some. Badges. I'll hand out some badges. Um, and the falafel fellas, uh, falafel fellas, a Syrian New Zealander who lives in Titarangi has a little um, caravan, and he makes uh, the most amazing, authentic Middle Eastern uh, falafel as well. So. Big mad props to those two falafel makers. Yum. Uh, my one is Mumbai Chart in Sandringham, where I went for lunch the other day, which Yum. was a vegetarian Indian place. And I had, I think it was called the mini lunch, and it was just like two rotis, some rice, a dal, a like a potato. <laughs> Doesn't sound that mini. I know, that's the best part, a potato and pea curry and some pickles. And it's just just really hit the spot. So yum. yum. Nice um, people, good food. My recent most delicious meal was, um, this is for the benefit of the people that know me that listen to this, I think I found the perfect carbonara, and um, it's at Andiamo on Jervois Road. Oh, wow. Um, and How far is that from your house, Soph? <laughs> I think that might be what makes it perfect, as you can uh, walk across the street. It's 20, 25 metres probably, but the other one that I wanted to shout out was the um, Szechuan eggplant that I had at Everybody Eats. So try the vegetarian oh, yeah. option when you go, um, because... You know, sometimes the vegetarians get the jazzier option, and it was absolutely delicious with rice. Thanks, Soph. Um, I'm going to say Tangdu style on Dominion Road, oh, not at the name. not in the Chinatown part of um, Dominion Road, um, further south, um, down from that BK. These guys do exceptional Chinese food, some really nice fresh veggies, some cool um, brothy soups, great dumplings. How do you spell that? T A N G space D U. I think I, I came across it from the Metro Cheap Eats um, recent um, publication. There's some good newbies in there. Yeah, good tips. Yeah, pulled that out. Little booklet. Another one I went to was Udon Works, which is yes, I've heard good things um, about that. Believe it or not, Udon <laughs> um, in the southern part of that um, Chinatowny area that is um, seems to be captivating Auckland at the moment. And we've been drinking today a really buzzy drop from Lindau, one of, I think, the most important metho traditional brands in New Zealand. It's been doing the job for a very long time, and this is actually 0% alcohol. I am impressed. Yeah. 
I am genuinely impressed. Yeah. It's I a little it's bit quite sweet. Young. A little you bit think the pregnant lady in the room would know yeah. that, eh? Did you not know? <laughs> no. Sophie was, Sophie's onto her third glass <laughs> and didn't know it was It's absolutely delicious. I generally yeah. am quite dubious <laughs> about, you know, zero alk or any low alk. Because normally they replace it sh- with sugar, Normally right? they suck. But I would honestly drink this. That on a summer's day would Especially be beautiful. it's now like 11.45. Perfect, yeah. We're approaching legitimate alcohol hour. And I feel like it's kind of a weird psychological effect where I feel slightly tipsy. Wow, but they have done a really good job with that. Good on you, Linda. Great tips, I. The last thing I'd like to do is how do you sign up to be a volunteer at Everybody Eats now? Um, you just head to our website, which is everybodyeats.nz, and click on Get Involved. We've got a brand new piece of software generously built for us by General Studios and it's really straightforward. Um, it's it's super easy, super fun to volunteer um, and we don't ask too much of you. So um, jump on board. We'd love to see you. Sophie wants to say something. She's mouthing things at me. I've got a really quick um, plug for Dine for Christmas. Um, the campaign is largely um, focused around December And so restaurants around the country will be asking you all to add $2 to your bill um, and that money, 100% of that money goes to the city mission um, to the food banks that we've been speaking about today. So if you can, jump on the Dine-Aid's brand new website and have a look at the participating restaurants um, and also feel free to up your donation from $2 to whatever you like if you're dining in any of those places. Shot so right on cue, the drilling started. <laughs> um, thank you all for joining us. Uh, next month, there might be another addition to the team with Sophie's Ooh. baby due on what day? Uh, the 1st of December. Oh. 10 days. We might have to find a, a replacement uh, for that month. We'll, nah. we'll see how you're going. You need no, to they sleep all the time. I think we should do an emergency pod when Sophie's in labour. Welcoming in baby carbonara. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've been calling it Chardonnay, but I like that. Chardonnay or carbonara. Carbonara is um, (laughs) pretty good. More on brand. Yeah. We'll see you all next month. Thanks thanks to Tina. Donate to all those beautiful charities that we're working with. Shot Tina. Thanks, Tina. She's our fabulous producer. And thanks, Matt. Thanks Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Bye. Kakiki. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.